happy 2024. I hope you all had a fun and relaxing holiday break and that you're ready and raring for another great season of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Joining me now to kick off the year with some of his famous predictions, Times Union columnist Chris Churchill. You do this every year, right? Like you have kind of a a column where you, you know, postulate in a lighthearted way. Generally, unless there's actual news to write about. If it's a slow turn of the year type situation, then yeah, I'll do something like that. So in this case, you did. So I wonder if you will humor us and, you know, read off a few of those predictions and maybe why you you might have stuck them in there. Are you going to make me read my own stuff? (laughs) It's a unique form of torture, I know. All right. Well, I'll read the first one and, and not really because it's my favorite, but because I should probably apologize for it. I said that in January, the Buffalo Bills are crushed 43 to zero by the Cleveland Browns of all teams in the first round of the playoffs. That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's not informed by any sort of actual NFL knowledge. As a matter of fact, I've probably watched less than five minutes of professional football in the last year. So, you know, take that prediction for what it's worth. <laughs> but then uh, I say one day later, Governor Kathy Hochul cites the team's courage in New York spirit as justifications for her decision to give the bills $900 million in state funding for the construction of a Scott Norwood training center in Lackawanna. So obviously I'm like poking fun a little bit at the state's ridiculous outlay for the new stadium. But the uh, apology part comes in the Scott Norwood thing. I, I've had a, a Bills fan or two reach out to, to say that the Scott Norwood thing has gotten really old. And as a Red Sox fan, I can understand, you know, like people bringing up Bill Buckner 30 years later <laughs> does get like, you should probably have used a more obscure or interesting or at least less dated reference. So isn't uh, Bill Buckner is not 30, but 40 years ago almost. Yeah, right. So uh, for those of us who have no idea who Scott Norwood is, would you humor me and just explain who he is? Yeah, he's the field goal kicker who missed a field goal that would have won the Bills the Super Bowl. I forget what year it was, but it was during that run where they went to four straight Super Bowls. Is that the wide right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Well, hopefully your apology will be accepted by diehard Bills fans. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will. What are some of the other uh, predictions that you made that you that you think are noteworthy? Well, I should say that, you know, I don't actually expect any of these to come true. (laughs) These are just basically about amusing myself mostly and hopefully amusing a few other people. Another one I should probably apologize for. I, I said that in October... Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy does nothing remotely noteworthy for the seventh consecutive month. That was probably a bit of a cheap shot, but, you know, (laughs) there's always going to be at least one cheap shot in a column like this, I suppose. I have Joe Rogan winning the presidency. Pretty ridiculous things. Of course, the presidency, the presidential election in 2024 is going to be huge news that you are probably going to, you know, cover in earnest come, you know, the later months of the year. So are you looking forward to that? Oh, yeah. I'm sure everybody is. I mean, what could go wrong? (laughs) It just seems like it's going to be a wonderful event event for the country and humanity. I do still hold out some sort of hope that it will not be a Biden versus Trump election and that we won't be forced to choose between two of the most unpopular people in the country. But um, 
you know, and in, in this column, too, I do say that, you know, in February, Trump withdraws from the presidential race, declaring that somebody who lost last time has no no reason to to run again, obviously playing on the fact that he's never conceded that he actually lost. A month later, I have Joe Biden declaring that he won't run after one of his German shepherds gets loose and bites a donkey, obviously playing on some of the trouble he's had with his with his German shepherds. Well, we will see. Anything's yeah. possible in 2024. One more sort of topic that I want to cover, which you kind of uh, took a more serious look at, which is uh, the population drop in New York State over the last year. What can you what did you write about that? And, you know, what's what's important for your audience to take away from it? Well, I was just saying that this has become kind of an annual tradition that I think the census releases its estimates. And it is important to say that they're just estimates. But they but they tend to release them every year around Christmas time. So every year at the end of the year, just heading into New Year's, we get this little notice that New York is again leading the nation in population <laughs> decline, which is always like a little bit of gloom among the uh, holiday cheer. What are the, what are they measuring? What is population drop? Is that people who are leaving the state? Is that people? Yeah, who are it's dying? is that everything. It's everything. Yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of people leaving the state. I think New York is always kind of unusual for its churn. There's always a lot of people, especially downstate, coming and going. You know, the upstate story is more is more about going than coming. There are large areas of upstate New York that have really emptied out over the last few decades. It's also important to note that the capital region is not one of them. All the pessimism about New York State and all the complaints about cost of living and, um, you know, no job opportunities and all those things don't, don't really apply here. This, you know, we are, we are growing here and we do have kind of a, for the moment, at least a pretty nice mix between relatively affordable housing and relatively good number of jobs, but downstate, obviously it's the cost of living that pushes people out. And in other parts of New York, it's kind of a lack of opportunity, but Neither of those factors are new stories. I think what is new is that we're not getting as many people moving into the state as we have in in prior years. And whether that's COVID related or an immigration thing or any number of other factors, I'm not sure. You think if the Buffalo Bills finally won the Super Bowl that that would do it? Population would finally increase. Yes. Yes. Everybody would look at snowy Buffalo and decide that's the place where I need to be. Now, but Buffalo's a cool town. Do you foresee this year that, you know, the governor and the legislature and, you know, they're going to make some effort to address this, even though it's something that's been happening for a while? No, I doubt it. I don't think so. To admit that population decline is a problem is to admit that leaders in state government are doing something wrong, you know, so I don't think they're inclined to do that. And also, to be fair, the the problem is incredibly difficult to solve. It's not something you can just, you know. Snap a finger, say, here's an investment in something, and then all of a sudden the population decline was reversed. Yeah. And, and some people would say, well, if the state started, you know, reducing its regulatory and its tax burden and all these various things, that it would help. And that is probably true. But that would just require such a mind shift. I don't, I don't think it's, the legislature is capable of, of doing that. Well, we will see if all of your predictions come true. Uh, and the, I kind of hope that a lot of them do not, because, you know, I'm not, Joe Rogan might be a pretty good podcaster, depending on your taste in podcasts, but um, 
But maybe not a politician. Maybe not a good president. Yeah. Yeah. You can read more of Chris Churchill's predictions at timesunion.com. You can also go to timesunion.com slash newsletters slash Churchill and subscribe to his weekly email newsletter. It'll come right to your inbox. We are going to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll speak with the aunt of the nine-year-old girl who was abducted from a state park in October. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. The disappearance of a nine-year-old girl in Saratoga County last fall made national headlines. The child was missing for nearly 48 hours. There was an Amber Alert issued. She was found alive in a trailer with 46-year-old Craig Ross Jr. on a property in Milton. Investigators tracked her there after they recovered a fingerprint from a ransom note left in the mailbox at the girl's family's home that matched with Ross. Since then, Ross has been charged with kidnapping and several counts of predatory sexual assault. Ross is also currently being investigated in connection with the murders of two girls in the early 2000s, though police have not disclosed any such connection at the moment. If convicted, Ross Jr. could face 25 years to life in prison. The girl's family has not spoken much publicly since she was found. But her aunt, Janae Senna, recently sat down with Christy Gustafson Barletti for an interview about how the family's doing and their new goal of pursuing victim rights advocacy. How are you doing? How's your family doing? And how is she doing? Um, I mean, everybody's doing okay. You know, um, it's one day at a time. That's really the best way I can describe it. You know, I, this is damaging to, in so many ways to say the to least, I guess, for fear of it sounding like a major understatement, um, very damaging and isn't going to go away you know, anytime soon. So it's just about us moving forward, focusing on um, her moving forward and, and having the normal childhood and the normal life that she, it should have. We're really focused now on just um, making sure that justice gets served, really just taking it one day at a time. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing from a victim's advocacy role since your niece was found in the last, say, two plus months? My sister-in-law and I have been keeping a dialogue open and jotting things down. Things that are like, that literally her list says why. Like it's titled why. Like why is this this way? And why is does a victim have to tell, especially a child, have to tell her story, you know, over and over and over again? We've been 
keeping kind of a, a list going of what we feel like um, really has been harmful in some way to our family and then figuring out, okay, now is there something that we can do with this information? My original idea obviously was, okay, whenever we're ready, we should talk to somebody. And so that is when I um, approached Good Morning America to do that uh, segment that we did. Now to an ABC News exclusive with the family of the little girl who was abducted on a camping trip and found two days later. For the first time, her aunt is talking about that dramatic rescue. She sat down with our Ariel Reshev about how quickly abductions can happen and the lasting impact for the victims. Yes, yeah, so tell us a little bit about what your goal or your hope was with, with talking to them, because the way I understand it is you're really looking for all victims, but especially children, to essentially have an advocate, a formal advocate on their behalf. So like you said, they don't have to keep retelling their story. They don't have to kind of keep rehashing and and reliving, which is something that's obviously traumatic. They do have an advocate, like a victim is given an advocate, but then that same person doesn't stay with them the entire time or isn't available to them each time they have to give a deposition or tell their story. So that is an issue that we saw just standing out that could be easily, I think, you know, rectified with just some streamlining of how it's done. Um, And then that would make the victim a lot more comfortable and especially a child, you know, a young victim to be a lot more comfortable with someone sort of that they trust and, we were kind of thinking the fact that it it isn't this way to begin with and the fact that they have to tell their stories so many times could really deter victims from coming forward in the future. You have victims out victims out there that will get a lawyer, you know, victims rights attorney and and like Gloria Allred, she's you know very famous for that. Um and so it's everything lends itself to the onus being on the victim. Like it, the victim has to proactively press the charges, especially when it's a sex crime, then, you know, the victim has to advocate for themselves. So you're talking with state legislators about potential changes based on the list you and your sister-in-law came up with, correct? I was working with Tedesco's office on legislation. Just I reached out to them because I knew that they were moving forward with legislation to put cameras in state parks. So I said, obviously, this is like the minimal thing that could be done. And if, if you need any help and, um, you know, connected them with Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara, who's the assembly sponsor for this bill. And I know they're working on getting more police presence in the state parks because the the rangers are amazing, but there just isn't enough of them. So, um, you know, I know they're working on some things on the state level. Um, I would like and plan to reach out to Kirsten Gillibrand because she does a lot on behalf of victims' rights and to see if there's something we can move forward on the federal level. What other concerns are on your list, things that you want to draw attention to? A lot of the questions I get asked, I get asked the same questions over and over again about her and her case and and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, why did it take so long for the Amber Alert to go out when they essentially knew she was taken because the bloodhounds were on the scene very early on and her scent stopped? Um, So you kind of have to know she was put in a car and taken. So why wasn't the Amber Alert sent out then? And it's because there's a protocol that the Amber Alert follows. And so there's a lot of questions like, should should that protocol be changed? Should there be, you know, different scenarios added to it? It's really more set up to protect, I guess, or kind of 
I guess, find, locate uh, custodial abductions. And that really is like three quarters of abductions. The, the stranger abduction scenario is very rare. So I think the Amber Alert sort of set up for the larger, you know, possibility. <laughs> um, but should it also, you know, accommodate someone like my niece who was taken by a stranger by, you know, all intents and purposes. So, you know, people ask me all the time, why did it take so long? And I'm like, I don't know. I just know there's a protocol and it was followed. Yeah, because it was what? It was... About 14, I think we we okay. figured it out. We were trying to figure it out the other day based on, you know, when Trisha called the state police and then when the Amber Alert actually went out. And I believe it was about 14 hours. Obviously, I think you're in a rare situation here where you're a journalist and you're also a family member. So you mm -hmm. probably see this story differently than most people. Uh, and obviously, as you know, this certainly dominated local news, but it also was heavy in the national news as well. Mm -hmm. So from a from a journalist standpoint, what do you think media and I'm talking mainstream media? Yes, there are the YouTubers and the citizen journalists and the, mm -hmm. the crazy people on social media. We've talked yeah. about, <laughs> that. but I'm talking yeah. the more average mainstream media, both national and local. But what are some things that in, in cases like this, whether it's a a sexual victim case or an abduction case or things like that, that how things should be or could be handled differently when you do see it from both sides, the journalist side and the family member side. Working in this type of industry, you see terrible stories, you know, day, day in and day out. Sometimes you're covering them. You know, sometimes you're listening to like early on in my career, listening to scanners, you know, just terrible news, but you become desensitized to it. Um, and you really, I think, develop this coping mechanism where you step back and you're not in it, you know, so it's not that you don't have em empathy, but you're not, um, you're pulling your your emotions and your feelings away and you, you have that ability to separate that. And so I think as journalists, when we're covering a story that's really sensitive, and here we have a living, breathing child. You know, she's a victim, um, but she's here. She's here to tell the tale, to live the rest of her life, to have the normal childhood she deserves. And so I think that sometimes we forget, you know, because we're so focused on the details of a story and what are the main details and the who, what, why, when, and where, and what has to get out to the public and what do we have before anybody else? And what, you know, we get focused on that and we forget that this is a real person, especially with local and community, like she's living within this community. And not only she's seeing these stories, but her peers are and her family. So there has to be some way where we can report the facts, the important facts, because that that's our job, right? But also being sensitive to um, the victim and the victim's families. And so I think that there can be some consistency um, with the way it's reported. Some outlets were reporting her name still. Some were saying, we're not going to say her name anymore because she's a victim and she's a minor. You know, some were still using her photo, some weren't. A lot of it wasn't ethical, in my opinion. And I like would never knock my fellow journalists because I, I know how hard this industry is and we don't get paid enough <laughs> and all that other stuff. So it's like I'm not knocking it, but I I just think we all have to just step back and say, you know, 
does the public really need to do this? Know this? Is this in the best interest of the victim? Is this triggering and hurtful for the victim's family? And that has been talked about lately. There's been a lot of talk about trigger warnings. And again, some publications use them, some don't. And, you know, it's up to the discretion of the publication. So maybe, you know, there's a trigger warning and maybe it's not using her name and the words, terrible, damaging words that were relate to the charges in a headline. And mm-hmm. some publications did both. And it's like, that is going to stick forever. She did not deserve this. She did not ask for this. She will want to move on with her life. She wants to move on with her life. And it's like, this, this is permanent now. So um, I think we can kind of collectively put ourselves in the shoes of the victim. And I can see how desensitized I am, you know, and even in the beginning, like, I guess it worked to my benefit because I was able to contact the media when she was missing and really speak kind of articulately because I could, I do this for a living and I kind of took myself out of it, even though it was happening to my niece. And then I would go randomly, you know, cry privately and then get back in front of a camera and, you know, clarify the details that were incorrect on the Amber Alert. I had people commenting on social media, oh, she seems so cold. Like (laughs) she must have had something to do with it. And I'm like, no, I do this for a living. Like I'm able to separate myself, but it's so odd when it's, you know, happening to you and it's your own family. But I knew what I had to do and I had a job to do and we had to find her. I mean, people saying that you seemed cold was just the tip of it, right? There were ridiculous things that people said online that was just so out there. As a journalist and as a family member, how do you compartmentalize that? Because you really did. You you spoke for the family. You got all the information out there. You made sure the information was correct. You were an advocate then. You're an advocate now. Mm-hmm. How did you stay so focused and not feel deterred by some people who were just nasty, awful humans toward you and your family with this? It's hard. Um, I think in the beginning, like we re- honestly didn't see a lot of it. Thankfully, we were so busy and there was so much out there. And I was on my phone the you know entire time it was dinging from messages. And most of them, and this is something we've talked about too, like the majority were people that were praying, were well-wishers, were like, what can we do? We'll do anything. I mean, people were like rallying from the most, the craziest places, England, <laughs> France. So- I think focusing on that and the fact that we were like the outpouring was amazing. And if you talk about like the power of prayer, whether you believe in it or not, there were a million people praying for her at one time. We got this rare scenario where she was found and, you know, so by all accounts healthy. So it was kind of like, you know, focusing on that. And then you would have the people that would make send. I mean, there were people sending messages saying, this happened because you don't watch your kids or just really heartless things. And it's like, they don't know the facts of the case. Like they don't Mm -hmm. know what happened and there's stuff that's not released to the public. So why are you making that judgment and then taking the time to email people that are going through a horrible thing? I mean, it's just so horrible. Now at this point, we're so grateful that we have the outcome that we have and that we have the opportunity to move forward. So the negative stuff is just doesn't even really matter.
But Times Union has chosen not to identify the child by name or to use her photo. Both have been removed from our website and social media. You can read our full coverage of this story, or as always, read more about anything that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or any of our social channels. All right, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more from Inside the Newsroom. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Chris Churchill and Christy Gustafson Barletti for their contributions to this episode. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts.